I mean, there's over 25 cameras at Dodger Stadium. If you think you're going to get away with looking at signs, no Did chance. he get another one? Did he get another one? Yes, he did! Oh, man. This dude is unbelievable. Hi, this is Emily Nyman, and you're listening to Breaking Balls. Welcome to episode 57 of Breaking Balls. I'm your host, Emily Nyman. I'm joined, of course, by my co-host, John Snyder. You can find us on Twitter, at BreakBallsPod. Or if you're feeling brassy, give the Breaking Balls hotline a call. 631-820-7377. You know, it's all fun and games until the best series of the year happens on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we have to wait a week to record. I thought you were going to go into it's all fun and games until someone loses an eye, like referencing Tatis with the home run when he was covering <laughs> oh, man, his eye in front of that. Bauer. <laughs> but yeah, you know, after a certain point, enough has to be enough, right? We've been bitten in the ass by this at this point. It's got to be what? Like, are we going on two months now of this? Probably since the season started and then some. Something always happens the day after we're recording. And, and we had to think like, What's the common thread here? What's the common denominator? And could it be that we're recording this right before the weekend starts when all the best games usually are? Hmm. I mean, I'm no uh, calendar titian. I don't know. What is it? What do you call when you make a calendar? Uh, I call it schedule. Oh, uh, 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 I have no idea. Is that, is that a job? <laughs> is that a job? It must be. And it's not mine because I feel I'm no like calendar titian, like- but... <laughs> I think the best things usually happen on the weekends, and maybe I didn't think that through when I first planned the recording day on Thursdays. I'm wondering, are there still calendar titians? Like, didn't they get that down in ancient Rome or something like that? That's off topic. That's not what we're talking about here. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, all all of this is a name of probably the biggest announcement we've had in a few weeks now, which is... We will no longer be recording on Thursdays and releasing on Saturdays. Starting with episode 58, we will be recording on Tuesday nights and releasing on Thursdays. I repeat, releasing the episode on Thursdays. So the weekend is good to go. Now I'm, if I'm being honest, I'm a little nervous that fate is just gonna be cruel to us and now shit's gonna start happening on Wednesdays instead of Fridays, but- It's gonna start popping off on Wednesdays. I was gonna say, we have to record eventually, right? We can't just like, well, we're just not gonna record again because I don't wanna get bitten again. So, you know, we're gonna deal with it. But why don't we talk a bit about this series that finally was, you know, the final straw for us. We can't keep missing shit like this and talk about it what feels like a year later when so much stuff is happening. Dodgers Padres, man. Holy shit. And what was so awesome about that series is the weekend prior to that, the Dodgers and the Padres played each other, but they were playing in San Diego and the Dodgers crushed them. And it seemed like, oh, everyone's been hyping up the Padres, but the Dodgers still come into town. So then a mere few days later for the Padres to go into Los Angeles and take three out of four games and in the manner that they did, wow. It was just really exciting baseball, no matter who you were rooting for. And that is gonna be the series to watch all year. You know, I I love it because that's exactly what the Padres had to do. You remember the Dodgers fans were giving them crap after the first series, like, you want this to be a rivalry? You got to make it a rivalry. Well, okay. How it's the it's the hottest rivalry in baseball right now, let alone the fact that we acknowledge that it's finally a rivalry. It's the best rivalry right now. It is must watch baseball. And 
the cherry on top, even though it happened in the first or the second game, actually, I believe I made a mistake. They played four games, so it must have been right. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So on the Friday night game, which was April 23rd, now, if you'll allow me to turn back the clock for a moment to April 23rd, 1999, <laughs> Fernando Tatis Sr., playing for the Cardinals at the time, he was playing in L.A., and that was the night that he hit two grand slams in one inning. We touched on this a few episodes ago, a few, probably like 20 episodes ago, but looking from it through the lens of Chan Ho Park, and fast forward to April 23rd, 2021, everyone's talking about, oh, the, that date and the Tatis family, blah, 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 the Padres are in L.A. Tatis hit two home runs in the same night. So basically... Dodger Stadium is now owned by the Tatis family. I think, like, legally, yeah, they have the deed now from uh, from the McCourts or whoever. Well, no, not the McCourts anymore. Whoever the fuck owns the Dodgers now. Um, you know what I get a kick out of, Em, is, uh, you know, we've had the uh, the good problem lately of we have we get so many voicemails now some weeks that we don't even have time to fit everything. So, by the way, guys, if just as a general note, if you ever call in and your voicemail's not on, it doesn't have to do necessarily with the quality of the voicemail. We get so many, we can't necessarily fit them into an hour. That's all a preface for saying, talking about Tatis hitting those two home runs. We have a listener, Diego, who's become one of our regulars, and... Uh, DJ Bingington, why don't you uh, spin this clip of uh, what Diego predicted? This is before this went down, by the way. Lastly, I don't know how old you were in April of 1999, but on this day, 22 years ago, Fernando Tatis Sr., two grand slams in the same inning. Well, funny thing is, Fernando Tatis Jr., playing for the Padres, playing at Dodger Stadium today, going to be a night game. Hey, you know, maybe it could happen. Diego, good fucking call, man. The Padres took the series, but you came out with a W for that one. <laughs> now, the other takeaway, I mean, we can't help but bring it back to Bauer occasionally, right? So some of the dynamics between him and Tatis were so much fun. You know, Tatis trolling him after the home, well, I don't even know which home run it was, but one of the home runs, you know, covering the eyes he was making his way around and then making fun of his strikeout strut uh, when he crossed home plate. Now, I was almost ready to give Bauer the benefit of the doubt here, right? Because in the post-game presser, he said all the right things. He was like, oh, no, I'm all for that kind of thing, you know, yada, yada, yada. It was totally a uh, heartbreaking, worst person you know makes a yeah. great point moment for me, by the way. Right, yeah, I was going to say, it's like stopped clock, whatever expression you want to use. Yeah, it was totally like that. And sure enough, it did turn out to be a stopped clock because less than 24 hours later, He's releasing a video bitching about, you know, well, you know, he wouldn't have hit that if he didn't look at the signs. So now suddenly this has turned into him from this light, fun exchange. Now he's accusing Tatis and the Padres of cheating. Which, of course, batters peeking back at the catcher to see where the catcher's set up is not cheating. That's what I'm saying. To whatever extent that's cheating, which I mean, isn't that on the catcher if the batter can see the signs? Exactly. And also Tatis is far from the first player to ever do that. Players on the Dodgers do it, on the Yankees, on the Mets, everywhere. And something that people kept mentioning with this is, you know, what are the repercussions for this? You know, that's not allowed. And as much as I hate this sort of thing, the game polices itself as far as all of this is concerned. Because if a player is shamelessly looking back and obviously doing it, he's going to get plunked with a pitch. So that's how it polices. And unlike the sign stealing with the Astros and what other teams have been doing lately, 
baseball, well, MLB rather, never had anything in the rules about that because technology to do it is fairly new, obviously. So eyes, though, have always been around and they've always been known to see. <laughs> Late breaking news. Yeah. <laughs> so because of that, it's not a rule because it doesn't need to be a rule. Major League Baseball for years now has already considered what the human body can do in terms of cheating in this game and it's taken care of in the rule book. And what isn't, like looking back at the signs, is handled with the quote-unquote unwritten rules. For me, it's as simple as the fact that two sets of signs exist. You have a set of signs from, I'm talking about the catcher signs here. The catcher has a set of signs for a no one's on base and ostensibly nobody, including the batter, should be able to see it if the catcher is doing his job correctly. And they have a set for when somebody's on second, which implies that they know that they're going to be looking. You're not trying if you're not trying to see the, you know, if you're on second and you're not trying to make out the signs, you're not doing your job. You're supposed to be looking. And they acknowledge that. So why is it so drastically different with the batter? It's like you said, if he's looking back that blatantly, that's going to take care of itself. And if he's getting away with it, well, that's on the catcher at that point. That's not a bad thing for the batter. That's a bad thing for the catcher and for the defense. And what's really funny is, so like we mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, the Dodgers fans were all like in the first series the weekend prior. Oh, if you want this to be a rivalry, then you guys need to show up. Blah blah. Then fast forward a week and the Padres do show up, take the series, and then all of a sudden it's, Hey, they were cheating. It's like, nah. Right. Listen, let's not fucking start that nonsense. I understand. Maybe you have a little bit of PTSD after 2017 and the Astros. I get it. But everyone isn't cheating who beats you. Like, give me a fucking break. Tatis hit like a thousand home runs that weekend. And that game in particular, that was the one game the Dodgers won. And they're complaining about cheating in it. Like, that was the part I couldn't get over. Like, you won that game. Why are you fucking bitching about it? And you know what I mean? The Dodgers complaining about it doesn't take away from the fact that at the end of the day, Tatis is playing like he's the face of baseball. Now that said, so is Mike Trout, but they just don't know how to market him because Mike Trout, I mean, by the way, I believe as of right now, Mike Trout is hitting 420 on 69 at bats, which, uh, but uh, seriously, he is having statistically, seriously, he is having the best month of his career. He had a great mic'd up game against the Astros when he was, you know, bullshitting with Correa and stuff. I mean, he wound up coming out early. That's when he got plunked on the uh, on the elbow. But it comes back to me to like, he is a funny guy, man. He's a little deadpan, but MLB just doesn't know what to do with him. And it doesn't help when you have somebody like Tatis, even if he's not putting up the statistics that Mike Trout is, he's getting the clutch hits and all the flashy shit and all the headlines. So it's not a perfect, you know, well, it's totally Mike Trout's fault. It's not, but you know, it's, it, it's a layered thing, obviously. Yeah. Cause the reality is player like Tatis, he markets himself just by being the way he is. He's just got that swag and Mike Trout, unfortunately, or fortunately, it's not really an unfortunate thing. It's just the way it is. Doesn't. And he's great. He's unbelievable. One of the best players of all time. Surefire Hall of Famer if he ended his career today. But he's milk toast. And I know that sounds crazy because of what I just said. It seems like those two things are oil and water. But because the personality side is what sets Tatis apart, besides his on-field play, when you don't have the personality, how are they supposed to market you, really? That's the thing that doesn't make sense. And I get that he's the best player, but what's to market besides him being the best? And especially when no one can watch his games unless they live in Southern California because of the blackouts. 
No, see, I I don't know if I fully agree. I don't know. I, maybe I didn't really phrase it well before, but I'm saying like Mike Trout is not unmarketable. I don't think, you know, I that's think that true. He, even even and that's why I brought up the mic'd up segment, because I, he was funny. He's not funny, like, in a, you know, rolling on the floor hysterically. He has been stitches, but he is like quietly kind of deadpan. Like he's just like this awkward kind of goofy, funny guy. I feel like the league is afraid to make that commitment, though, when you have somebody like Tatis that is so easy to market. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's not that I think it's like, well, one is marketable, one's unmarketable. I think Trout is harder to market, and I don't think that MLB is willing to put in the work. You know, it's more work to do him than Tatis at the end of the day, and I don't think they're willing to do it. Tatis is an easy choice, and that's what they're going to go with. And baseball's basically they've made this bed themselves because the sport has always been stodgy, has always been buttoned up and like act like you've been here before, blah, all that nonsense. And this is what happens. Now you've had generations of players that refuse to be anything other than baseball playing robots on the field. So like you said, it's not Trout's fault. It's Major League Baseball. They're the ones with billions of dollars. Fucking figure it out, marketing department. Emily, this has... Uh this has been great talking about these two great teams going at it and some of the best players in baseball right now. And I think it's become pretty apparent at this point that you and I are avoiding a couple topics. We have to make our way back to New York eventually, buddy. And it's so sad, John, because since we last recorded, including last Thursday's game, the Yankees have been five and three. And that sounds good. Hey, that's a winning record over the sure. last week. But their losses have been so brutal and just so ugly that it's tough to look at that glass half full. Takes the shine out of the wins, right? Yeah. I mean, they played at home versus the Orioles. There was a bizarre play where they were losing 4-2 in the eighth inning. It's two outs, and Judge tried to stretch a double or a triple or something. He gets thrown out at third at the same time that DJ LeMahieu is crossing home plate. So at first, the call on the field was that the run was counted and it was going to be 4-3 by the end of the inning. Then the umpires brought it back, said that Judge was out before DJ crossed the plate. And Boone didn't challenge it right away. He waited to challenge. And while in his defense, it was a little short, the umpires gave him. Because then by the time he came out, he was like, oh, uh, I can't challenge it. They weren't going to let him. He gets tossed. And the whole thing was bizarre because, first of all, what are you waiting for? And I'm not one of these Boone haters where, you know, everything is Boone's fault. But in this situation, in the postgame presser, he said that their process is that they call up and they wait for the call from their guy. And that's what he was waiting for. But in this case, it's the end of the fucking game. Just go out there. Like, how? This is where it's like, I know trust the process, but this is like such a bureaucratic process bullshit that it doesn't fall into that same trust the process umbrella. It's literally the baseball equivalent of getting wrapped up in red tape, you know, not being able to just see your hand in front of your face. It's exactly what higher leverage moment are you waiting for? This is it. Like, I don't know if you need like signs pointing to it or like flashing lights or something, but that's why the whole fucking thing exists. That was that was baffling, man. And you know, what? like, yeah, it's just and I say this every week, right? We'll get into the Mets in a minute, but it's looked out of sync. You know, the Yankees games that I've been able to watch. The, like the glaring play that sticks out to me was uh, I forget who your third base coach is, but when he sent, I think it was Stanton, oh, and yeah. Stanton must have been out by like 15 feet, 10 feet, something like that. Yeah. And in Stanton's defense, he did slow up because he knew he was dead. So there's no reason to, for well, him to go Well, because he full. never should. He because he was he got thrown under the bus there. He never should have been sent. Yeah, it was ridiculous. I mean, thankfully they won that game and they were already winning like four or five nothing at that point. 
but they've been making bonehead errors on the bases. It's been pretty embarrassing for them. I mean, really little league shit. And right up until today, everyone's favorite player, Tyler Wade, they're losing. And this is in uh, the top of the 10th, of course. The, you guessed it, extra innings rule fucking strikes again. Tyler Wade, with two strikes on him, tries to drop a bunt and fouled out. They never got that fake run across the plate. And to me, that is fucking egregious. It is literally sitting there for them. And the Orioles were able to do it, John. And of course, they won in the bottom of the 10th inning. It was just, it was fucking ugly. And then to make things even uglier, people then were saying, why did they trade Talkman instead of Wade? Because this week, they sent Talkman to San Francisco. They got Wandy Peralta, a lefty out of the pen, and a player to be named later. And now everyone's upset about the fifth outfielder. And of course, you know, now he's like a Yankee legend. As soon as he goes, everyone loves him. Right. And yeah. they didn't trade Tyler Wade because one, I don't think he has as much trade value. So he's not really worth as much. And two, they play different positions. Like, that doesn't even make sense. Talkman is an outfielder, Wade is an utility infielder. If you trade Wade, then what? Talkman's going to fucking play shortstop if Glaber gets hurt. And this team's getting hurt all the time. We've seen that in the last few years. So we need these backups. Like, I just don't understand how people think. Yeah, it's that economics term that escapes me again, which is that, and I'm sure Max will get me here, but it's the thing where you value something more when you have it, you know, disproportionately to its to its value, irrespective of everything else. You know, just it, it means more to you because suddenly you feel like you're giving something up, you know? Don't it always seem to go <laughs> that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? <laughs> This is probably as good a segue as we're going to get into the Mets because I, I do have to say something because you guys lost a game to Matt and Harvey. Ugh, and I wasn't even going to mention that. I, I have to just because <laughs> I, I hear a lot of hate for Matt and Harvey from Mets fans and I don't understand it. And I, maybe this isn't the best timing because he just beat you guys. So that's not what this is about, though. I'm genuinely happy for the guy to see the comeback that he's made. You know, he was... I'm of the opinion that if you were a Mets fan and you enjoyed any of those, you know, Dark Knight era Harvey days back, you know, five, six years ago, you got to be rooting for the guy, man. I mean, he's human. It was, you know, too much, too fast for him. You know, who are who are all of us to say that if we had all the money in the world and lived in New York City in our early 20s, we wouldn't be banging Kate Upton and going to Rangers games on blow, right? Who Kate, knows? Kate Upton, are you telling me that Verlander's wife Banged Harvey first? Oh, yeah, they did date, right? I'm not making that up. Oh, my God. I mean, I'm almost I hope positive so. that they were together, like, when he was when he was on. Um, I know anyway. Max is going to be like, this isn't my job, but Max, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope you get us on that one. This is way above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah, so congratulations to Harvey on the comeback, not specifically on beating the Yankees, but, you know, on it's impressive to be able to do it again. And that's really it for New York baseball, right? <laughs> oh, is it, John? Yeah, is I don't. It? I don't want to talk about the Mets. <laughs> oh, it's, can we it's, talk about the Mets versus Red Sox with Degrom on the mound yesterday? You know what? It's it. A couple weeks ago, you asked me, kind of sarcastically at the time, you know, as the resident uh, expert on having an ace with no run support, you would ask me about an upcoming Cole start you were worried about. And I made some comments about, you know, you got to enjoy the pitching for what it is. And that was easy to say when DeGrom had the game that he had a week and a half ago. But this was a classic case of, yeah, six innings, one run, and we lost. Until who? Nick 
what's his name? Varela, Veretta. Oh, and I don't even remember. They got two hit by P- him. This Pavetta, guy, I think. This guy outpitched Degrom. Well, he didn't actually, but the Met lineup though. made it look like he did. Right. That's the thing. Is like if you take, if you if you don't look at the offense for a second, which is what I've been trying to do for the last twenty four hours, is not look at the offense. <laughs> the pitching was outstanding. The Red Sox have had a super hot offense to start the season, one of the best in the league so far. We held them to three runs over two games. That's pretty fucking good. We shut them down. We scored one run over that span. A single run over two entire games of baseball. The offense is just non-existent. Aside from Davis, Alonzo, McNeil's hit a couple the last few days. That's it, man. Every, you know, Lindor, Conforto, Smith, they're all dead. They're all just, it's its lifeless at the plate. It's not even just that they're getting beat. They're, I don't know, what, the approach or whatever that they're taking, it's dog shit. It's dog shit. In their defense, and even in the Yankees' defense for a minute, and basically all the teams, because right now, as far as the batting averages up to this point in a, a regular full 162-game season, over the course of the last 10 years, this is the lowest batting average league-wide. It's at 232. And mind you, 2020 isn't counted in that because there was no April or March baseball. It's also worth remembering, this is a carryover from last season for the Mets. We led the league in batting average last year, and we currently are last in batting average with runners in scoring position. That juxtaposition will not win you games. Now, don't fret, John. And and Yankee fans listening, don't fret either, even though I know we make fretting a national pastime, but... This year was bound to be different if for no other reason than the season that preceded it. Normally, they play an entire 162-game season with a full spring training in the beginning, and that didn't happen last year. So minimal baseball was played. This year was bound to start slow. There was bound to be injuries. There was bound to be dips in production, and that's what we're seeing. So I think that we're going to see that batting average raise for the league. We're going to see it for the Mets, the Yankees, and things are going to start getting back to normal as the teams start warming up a little bit. But the early season freakouts are being extra freak outy because of that dip. But it's the entire league, everybody. Well, I mean, yeah. And if you look at it over the course of the 10 seasons, you know, the, the chart that you're talking about, it really kind of answers, you know, everybody's complaining about, oh, you know, the, the hate the batters, new approaches and all that shit. Well, strikeout percentages are up as average is going down and that pretty obviously tells you that's because pitchers are throwing harder and they're throwing more strikes really hard in the strike zone and basically every team has a guy like jonathan loizaga who's coming into the game in the eighth inning seventh inning and he's throwing fucking 101 right so so as a batter you have to adjust to that you can't bat like you batted in 2010 anymore because you're not being pitched to like they were being pitched to in 2010 and speaking of going into the past Shohei Otani, this week, he became the first player since Babe Ruth to start a game on the mound and lead the league in home runs. That guy is fucking insane. He's a machine, man. He's like, as far as a two-way player goes, I mean, it's like, you know, because everyone's with DeGrom, you know, his bat has been, for as much as a pitcher's bat is going to be hot, you know, his bat has been hot to start the season. And it's funny because, you know, Otani is not as good a pitcher as DeGrom, but he's a way better hitter. So it's almost like a little bit of a reverse, except, I mean, let's be real. If we're talking about, like, on the whole, both sides, Otani's probably a little bit better, but... I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Well, think about it. No, no, no. Well, think think about what I'm saying. Like, as far as you take his pitching ability and his hitting ability combined, I don't think 
combined, DeGrom's is as good. DeGrom's pitching is way better than Otani's, but I think that the gap between Otani's hitting and DeGrom's hitting is even bigger than that pitching gap, if that makes sense. I, I feel what you're saying, and I feel the support of Otani, because a lot of people ha have been like, oh, I'm not impressed by him. And it's like, first How? of all, yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah exactly. How are you not impressed? Yes, you are. And like you said, this guy's hitting fucking monster dongs. Monster. I mean, that one that he hit on that ESPN broadcast is insane. And my favorite thing, though, about Otani, real quick, is that anytime he does something at the plate, that'll be like the, oh, take that, DH people, as if he's not the fucking right, anomaly. Yeah. <laughs> he plays in the AL, you idiots. Now, we had our obligatory complaint about the extra innings rule, which will happen every single week, basically, because there's been a ton of extra inning games. I feel like more than normal, and that could be wrong. I could just be thinking that because of this dumb rule. But it's not the only dumb rule that's pissed people off this week. The Diamondbacks, they played a doubleheader against the Braves, I believe. And Madison Bumgarner, he threw a no-hitter. But it is now. Did he, though? <laughs> <laughs> now they're saying it's not a no-hitter because it was only seven innings. And Major League Baseball literally said, basically, we don't know what could have happened in those eighth and ninth inning if there were it. So we're just going to call it a special event or something like that. Our, uh, our cousin Tom texted me right after that happened. He's like, I'm so glad this came back and bit them in the ass immediately. And I agree with him 100%. It's like, good, good. I'm, you know, especially because this has been a season where we've already had a couple no hitters to begin with. So let's get another one in there and let's have it make you guys look like an idiot. Plus, just to leave no stone unturned, Bumgardner, not subtly, called out Manfred too in the post game. He was like, I'd like to thank the Shadows at, uh, well, not Turner Field, but wherever the Braves play now. And I'd also like to thank Rob Manfred for seven inning games and then got up and walked out. I have a question though, and this is maybe a dumb question, but in the age we're living in with the internet and the access to information that we all have, what the fuck are even the quote unquote record books? I mean, this is gonna be talked about, this is always gonna be talked about when Madison Bumgarner is mentioned in the future, even, you know, a hundred years from now, Everyone is going to be able to look this up. This is going to be something that is known. So what record books are they even referring to? Like, I guess Major League Baseball has some official thing, but we all know about it. So who fucking cares, right? Yeah, I mean, it's I'm torn because like on the one hand, you'd like to think the players don't really care, but that, it, you know, it, it, maybe it's a little bit less so like in the moment. It's like, well, hey, you know, the stuff you had that day, you know what you did. But fast forward a few years when you're not playing anymore you don't really have anything but the statistics left, right? And so you go telling people about that, and it's like, well, it wasn't technically a no-hitter. I saw somebody say, and I agree with this, it should really be the designation, say no-hitter, and then in parentheses, seven. You know, just add add the little addendum. Because, like, what, what else are you going to call it? Like, it, he, he would have kept going if you had allowed him to, but you said that the game had to be seven innings. How is this his fault? And this is just yet another example of Major League Baseball either directly making rules that fuck with the game or indirectly not making rules that fuck with it like the steroid era and then not dealing with the fallout of it. Because now you have a Hall of Fame with no steroid guys in it for the most part and the thought of, hey, why don't we just denote on the plaque that they were suspected of steroids or something, but we just ignore it and not let them in. And now in this case, it's going to ignore Major League Baseball's role in this, that they're the ones who made this rule and didn't have any sort of 
guidelines in place for if something like this were to happen, especially in the age of the pitcher. No hitters are happening like fucking crazy over the last few years. So you would think that they would have thought of this. That's what I love is them acting like they got caught with their pants down. Like, oh, well, who, who could have predicted this? It's like, uh. <laughs> you can't predict baseball, Susan. Especially not the league. Oh, uh, just one more thing. Let's not forget the really important part of that was that Atlanta got shut out in both games of that doubleheader. Yeah, they literally only got one hit the entire day, I think. I think the first game, they almost got yeah. no hit. Oh, yeah. Too bad they didn't no-hit them, because then it would have been like, all right, well, now about what about the super no-hitter? 14-inning right, no-hitter. Yeah. <laughs> they still wouldn't recognize it. And on that note, let's get right into the voicemails. Our first voicemail is from Michael, the food guy. Almost April's almost over. It's almost over. The food guy's had enough. Time to take drastic measures and set a new precedent, because you know I'm all about first. So this is the first voicemail from the doorstep of the birthplace of Babe Ruth. How to be done. I was at the Orioles-Yankees game last night. We got owned by Matt Harvey, made him look like Cy Young. Boone got thrown out and then cried the umpires bullied him. What a tailspin. This had to be done. I'm here. I'm begging the Babe for, for forgiveness. This is going to turn it around. Mark my words. Watch that win tonight. Well, Michael, clearly the Babe answered your prayers because they did win on Tuesday night. Thank God. And then in traditional Ruthian fashion, he drank too much, didn't wake up for the afternoon game today, and the Yankees <laughs> lost. Michael, thank you so much for your call. Our next call is from Bubak. We back! We back! We back in the saddle! Woo! Yo, kids! It's Bubak! Standing on splatter! I don't want to take all the credit, but I will. It's clear Cashman heard my voicemail last week and took my advice. You know Cash is listening to this here porn. Kids, I mashed the panic button super early. And after the last three games in Baltimore, I'm mashing the let's fucking go button. Better yet, you know what? Jason Aldean says it best. We back, we back, we back in the saddle. Fuck yeah, let's go! Woo! Bubak, I have to thank you for that call because as you heard, I was pretty down in the dumps about tonight's game because they lost or today's game in the fashion they, that they did. But they did have a 5-3 and three record over the last week. And you're right. I think they are back. Barring tonight's embarrassing game, the Yankees have been swinging the lumber well. They've been pitching well. So I, I'm hopeful. It, it's just funny to me, and, and Bubak is certainly uh, part of this movement, how much the Yankees fan pendulum swings so quickly. Like before that Orioles series, you guys were ready to just write off the entire season. And now suddenly it's like World Series is a sure thing because you won three games in a row. We are a mercurial bunch, John. And that is my third take. And I nailed it. No, 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 no. I don't do two takes. <laughs> I don't do retakes. <laughs> Bubak, thank you so much for that jolt of enthusiasm and your call. Our next call is from Dave. Hey, Nyman and Snyder, it's Dave. It's been a while. Sorry, I had some eye surgery, but I will say watching the Mets on painkillers is far better than not. So uh, obviously some of the Mets fan base is probably panicking after yesterday's loss to the Red Sox, but uh, I sort of calmed down a little bit and I realized that, you know, the Red Sox are probably the hottest team in baseball right now, if not one of the, so to, and they're scoring the most runs and we held them to pretty low runs, you know, so it could have been much worse, but there's also no denying that the Mets bats are pretty cold. And uh, I'm seeing in Twitter already people are talking about firing the hitting coach, which I always think is really, really stupid because none of the hitters are hitting differently than they did in years prior. So the hitting coach hasn't changed any of their methodology or anything. So, you know, is it just like a typical slump? 
you know, these things happen. You know, my dad used to say you can't win the league in April, but you can sure lose it, and we're certainly not losing it. So uh, I don't think it's time to panic, but what are your guys' thoughts on that? And then it led me to another thought about the Mets in general and our fan base and how we just grow these sort of crazy attachments to players. It, you know, it made me think of, uh, you know, when we were going to trade some other players and we didn't, and they came out crying and stuff, and everyone was just really super glad that they didn't get traded. But, you know, if these players, you know, one more floors, obviously, um, if these players aren't the best, you know, what is the attachment? Just because they came through our farm system, what's the difference you know, the, the idea of baseball is to win and have the best team possible that your team can, like, put on the field. You know, so right now, and it's just looking back to when I was originally a Mets fan to where I am now, it's like, you know, we basically have two first basemen, and we have a guy that can barely play third base. You know, we don't have elite outfielders. We've got too much starting pitching, and it just makes you wonder, like, what are they going to do? What is their plan? You know, obviously the plan is to have, you know, Alonzo or, or Dom because obviously when Cano comes back, that's going to be his spot because I'm pretty sure we're going to have the DH after the next collective bargaining. So what is their long-term goal here? What, what are they planning? We have two first basemen. It, it's just not working. You know, last last night, not to put it all on Dom, but that was a catchable ball. That's the ball I think Nimmo catches. And I think there was a, a similar play in Colorado. And I think another one in Chicago, and it's just, you know, we're playing a substandard left fielder, and it's not his fault. You know, we have two first basemen. And so I think that we need to be a little bit more cold and calculating about putting a team together, you know, it's not personal, you know, if we traded Dom or we traded Alonzo to get like, you know, a top player to, to fill a hole, make us more competitive. Is that necessarily bad? So anyway, that's, that's what I was wondering. I want to know what your guys' thoughts are. Uh, my bartender question of the week, and sorry for the long call, but it's two weeks worth. Uh, Cause I was listening to you guys talk about digital rights last week. And, and it made me remember when the Mets had, um, you know, F F A N on the main website playing through and then MLB came through and took control of all the websites. So there used to be a guy who used to run a website, a fan site, um, named Brian Hoke. You probably know him as a Yankees fan. And now he's the Yankees reporter, but he was a staunch Mets fan. And it got me thinking, would either of you give up your fandom to work in MLB or be a reporter? So in other words, you know, if you were suddenly offered a job to cover the White Sox, would you be able to do it? All right, guys, thank you. Sorry for the long call. Hope you guys are well. First, Dave, I agree. I think it's crazy for the Mets in a pitcher's park that was built specifically for their franchise model of always having really good pitchers to have a guy like Dom Smith in the outfield. You need guys that can move and that can cover a lot of ground, and he just can't do it. And would I cover another team? Absolutely. I literally, and I'm not exaggerating, all I do is watch baseball from the time I get home from work until like one o'clock in the morning every night, no matter who's playing. So yes, I would be able to cover any team. So Dave, just just in order, uh, I agree with you. The whole fire Chili Davis at the end of April movement is fucking ridiculous. We talked about this last week. These professional hitters, like it, this is not, it, it would be a tokenism move to make the fans feel better. Like, oh, they're doing something and they would not have practical results that we're all expecting. So no, Chili Davis should not and will not lose his job right now at least i agree that the optics of what's happening uh, the team overall suck right now but yes it's still too early to panic i know that excuse is starting to feel old and i'm, I'm right there with you on that it sucks having to say it but it's the same kind of thing where like if we had this stretch in the middle of the summer people wouldn't be freaking out as much but right now we don't have a stretch of good baseball to fall back on and feel better about you know that we've shown that we can do it and this is just a slump so the optic, you know, it happening to us this time of year particularly sucks. 
this team is too good to stay like this forever. It's not going to. We are going to take off eventually. Uh, it's just a matter of when. Um, as far as overvaluing the players, yeah, man. And again, it comes back to that economic term that I can't think of right now. I'm not going to waste time trying to remember it. But this is why fans are not the GM, right? Because we grow to love these players' personalities and you know their passion on the field and stuff like this, and we're not necessarily thinking analytically about them and you know financially about them and stuff, and you know or objectively really at the end of the day about them. And so that's why you know I want a guy like Sandy Alderson, who's not a Mets fan, who just gets paid to be there and make cold hard decisions, and frankly doesn't give a shit if you like a player or not. He's going to do what he thinks is going to make the team win, right? So I think it's something that Mets fans need to be open to because you make a good point. You know, we have two first basemen. We don't have the true outfield. You know, you made some really good points. And, and the solution to that is probably trading some guys, you know, and it's guys that we may not want to see move. Well, that's because they're good and they have value. So if it doesn't happen this year, if it somehow doesn't come together, like I'm so sure it will, then yeah, some hard decisions are going to have to be made. And it's going to suck more for the fans because of those emotional attachments. And and again, I'm hoping Max will remind me what, what that term is that I can't think of, where you overvalue something that you own. And when it comes time to, you know, you know to trade or whatever, you, you think that it's worth more than it really is. And I think there's an element of that with every team's players. Dave, thank you so much for your call. Our next call is from James. Hey, guys. James back. Um, Black Weaver 52. So this is more of a comment. I think that in order for the Yankees to fully be back, they got to beat the good teams. It's good to get these wins against the crap teams, but they got to get the good teams. Let's keep the good times rolling. Go Yankees. James, I totally agree. And those wins will come. Just like they've come against these shitty teams, those wins are going to come. Thank you so much for your call. Our next call is from Danny. Hey, it's Danny from Manchester, UK. So I stayed up for the games on Tuesday and Wednesday. And I know it's only the Orioles, but there's definite signs of life from the Yankees. I mean, if Clint Frazier's hitting home runs, then, you know, something must be working. Um, still leaving too many guys on base, but, you know, bats are waking up. Um, starting pitching looks more settled. And more than anything, I think the mere presence of Mike Ford's mustache is starting to have the positive impact. You know, we all thought it would. <laughs> Seriously, there aren't many people that can rock a mustache. You've got maybe Tom Selleck and maybe Burt Reynolds, possibly my auntie Christine, but Mike Ford has, yeah, he's, he's got it going on. Anyway, uh, putting my sexual confusion aside, uh, Yankees have won two in a row, so I'm happy. You know, I'm so glad that we do the voicemails after we have our first half hour because you guys are all making me feel so much better. Danny, you're right. Things are looking up besides that loss today, and I should be more positive. I should practice what I preach, and they are leaving guys on base, but at least they're getting guys on base. That is something frustrating, but also good. It's not like they're just getting sat down one, two, three, or only four guys in an inning, one guy on base. They're getting guys in scoring position, and they're just not able to execute past that, but those hits are going to come. They're hitting the ball hard. They're going to have some better luck. Balls are going to fall in and touch grass, so I'm feeling positive, and you're right. Mike Ford's mustache is fucking legit. And on that note of Mike Ford's mustache, uh, Danny, the only contribution to this conversation I have is, as a fellow musician, I have a music recommendation for you. This made me think of that. Uh, the artist is the band called The Beards. The album is called 
having a beard is the new not having a beard. And the song is called You Should Consider Having Sex with a Bearded Man. Trust me on this one. Look it up. Sounds like he's already halfway there. So maybe be careful if you listen to it. It's outstanding. It's so fucking funny. Danny, thank you so much for your call. Our next call is from Joe. Hey, Emily and John. It's Joe from the Grand Hours Podcast yet again. I'm calling directly after the Yankees loss to the Orioles in extra innings. And uh, my question to you is, do you think it's time for the analytical department to do some spring cleaning? Whoever hired the analytical department need to me needs to go. Uh, the Yankees seem pretty much dead last in analytical thinking and baseball IQ and base running, all the little things to make you a winner. It doesn't look like we have it right now. I know it's only April, but the only way we win games is by hitting the ball over the fence, and that's not what wins you games in October. So I just want to know your thoughts. Joe, I don't know if I I would jump right to blaming the analytics. I think in, in situations like these when teams are on skids and they're playing bad baseball overall, we want to look for someone to blame because we want it to be an easy fix, like firing the hitting coach, firing the manager, uh, rehauling the analytical department. But have we all ever thought about just that this is how this game is played? It ebbs and flows. And sometimes the onus is on the players. I mean, they're the ones who are on the field. These guys know how to run the bases. They know how to do all these things. They're just having bonehead moments. And it's because... They're not quite clicking yet, and they will fall into place. I have total faith in that. And also, Joe, thank you so much for having me on your podcast, everyone listening. I was on Grind Hours podcast with Joe this past week. We talked about our five must-see at-bats, and it was a must-listen episode, if I do say so myself. Joe, just very briefly, man, I know you're frustrated. I get it. I, even from my side of uh, you know New York baseball, I get it. But, you know, you got to be careful not to fall into hyperbole, you know, saying that the Yankees are last in analytics, last in baseball IQ. It's way too early to say anything like that. We need a bigger sample size. And, you know, you said it yourself, so I'm going to take the opportunity, being that even with our new recording schedule coming up, we're still going to be recording the next episode in May. So it is the last time I can say it. <clears throat> me, me, me. It's April. Joe, thank you so much for your call. Our next call is from Eddie. Hey, this is Eddie Soto, Eddie J. Soto on Twitter. I'm here to talk about the hit by pitch to Bryce Harper and then to D.D. Gregorius. I think there was a huge amount of opportunity for the umpires to handle that situation before um, Joe Girardi got ejected. One of the things they could have done is at least warn the Cardinals right after the hit by pitch to the face of Bryce Harper, allowing Genesis Cabrera the opportunity to look back at what he just did and say, hey, you know what, I'm just going to throw it down the middle, the next one, because I obviously do not have control over my pitches. The next one, he hits Didi Gregorius, and uh, no ejection for Genesis Cabrera. And I'm not saying the ejection should have happened for purposely pitching uh, or purposely giving a hit by pitch, but you know, the risk of hurting hitters. I mean, you have Bryce Harper being hit by face, D.V. Gregorius being hit as well. How much more of a risk factor does the Phillies lineup have to face with Genesis Cabrera? I think there should be an ejection just on the health 
of on the opposing hitters. It, it just it's not fair. Um, you can't allow yourself to feel comfortable at the batter's box with a pitcher that can't control his pitches. You won't be able to set yourself up for anything. So, yeah, that's my thoughts. I think Genesis Cabrera should have been ejected just on the, the for the safety of the of the Phillies hitters. Thank you. Bye bye. To be honest, Eddie, I do agree with you in that they've thrown out guys or they, they've worn guys, I feel like, for less. I mean, that than stuff with the Astros and the Dodgers last year, Joe Kelly got suspended and fined, and he didn't even hit anybody. He just threw in their vicinity, and that was enough. I mean, I don't think he was removed from the game. I can't remember correctly, but he did have some sort of punishment. Now, this is different in that they assume the intent wasn't there, and I agree. I think this guy just lost a little control. There is a side of it that they are the best pitchers in the world and the assumption is that he'll be able to gain regain control you know if this were like a high school game then yeah they might call it quits if some guy's throwing 95 and just holding off and hitting guys but in this case they assume that genesis can get it under control and get himself calm and collected this is one of those cases where i see both sides like i don't think that the umpire necessarily made the wrong call per se by not ejecting him that said you know, with the understanding that all ejections are a judgment call on the umpire's part, right? I think he maybe should have considered it because at that point, intent, you know, it, on the one hand, yeah, okay, intent is all that matters, but at the same time, it kind of doesn't matter because the result is what it is, right? A dude gets hit with a fastball in the face, next guy gets plunked in the ribs. It's like, well, who are we to argue? Oh, he meant to do that. He didn't mean to do that. Get him the fuck out of there. To me, and I know that's going to, you know, for whatever team he's pitching for in a given situation that's shitty for that team, the fans are going to call foul, yada, yada, yada. But Eddie, I agree with you. I think player safety is paramount. I think the ump needs to take control of that game back. And I think that, yeah, he needs to get kicked out for that. And, you know, even if it wasn't on purpose, I'm sure he feels terrible about, you know, hurting Harper like that. And I'm sure he's embarrassed that he couldn't get his control back and he had Didi. All those things you know intent emotions whatever at the end of the day the results are what they are and if you are you know you're endangering players like that you got to go man come back next time figure it out in your bullpen session you can't do that shit at this level and to be fair though on the other hand as far as the hitters are concerned and their ability to step in the box and not be afraid to get hit that's part of the game and that is something that literally sets apart major league hitters and the rest of the baseball world is that they're able to step into the box without fear. And if you were or I were to step into the box, we would be hitting the deck literally on every pitch because it looks like every pitch is going to hit you. So whether the next batter is scared or not, that's his mental thing to deal with. And then he needs to get it together because getting afraid, being afraid to step in the box is something that they can never have affect them because if they do, they're done. And it's something that we kind of take for granted with how tough these guys are. Like you see them, you know, when they do get hit, they barely flinch. They'll just like take it and like, all right, go. That is so hard to do. It's like you said, I'm like, we would be running for our lives if that happened. I'd be running home. Eddie, thank you Not so home much. home plate, like home, like my house <laughs> on Long Island. Eddie, thank you so much for your call. Our final call is from Quinn. Hey, it's Quinn. I wanted to talk about how the three batter minimum rule is pretty stupid because last night, I don't know if you saw this, but last night uh, with the Cardinals and Phillies game, they put in a relief pitcher and the very first pitch, he hit Bryce Harper in the face with the 97 mile per hour pitch. Uh, and then the manager wanted to take him out after that. But then the very next pitch, he hit D.D. Gregorius in the ribs and 
then he still couldn't take him out because of the stupid three batter minimum rule. And Joe Girardi, um, understandably, was really, really upset and got ejected. And I think that the maybe because of this, manager should make a sign that says, like, spike the next pitch in the dirt and then start arguing balls and strikes to get ejected to avoid the three batter minimum rule because, yeah, that rule is pretty terrible in that context. Quinn, I didn't even think of that aspect that, of course, they couldn't take him out because of the three batter rule. And I don't really know how to solve that. I think that this is going to be one of those situations where it's such a anecdotal and rather unfortunate, but it's still something that happened. But when is that ever going to happen again? So I don't know if Major League Baseball is going to take that and be like, you know what, maybe we need to change something. It was just an unfortunate side effect of a maybe a dumb rule, but a rule nonetheless. You know, Quinn, I liked your suggestion about, you know, why don't they just purposely spike a pitch to like get a jack? But no, no, no. Why stop there? Just charge the batter in the box. Just like run at him, throw a punch. You'll get ejected. It's quicker. It's easier. You know. Quinn, thank you so much for your call. And thank you to all of our callers. You guys are amazing. Anyone else listening wants to get in on the fun? Give the Breaking Balls hotline a call. 631-820-7377. As always, we are going to end this week's episode with our top three performances of the week. And I'm going to kick it off with my number three. Had to go with Tatis Jr., He absolutely went off against the Dodgers last weekend. He hit five home runs, nine runs, six RBI. His batting average, 444, slugged 500. His OPS was over 1.7. So it was just a fucking unreal series for that kid. I feel like 3B should be Diego calling that he was going to hit those two home (laughs) runs. Seriously, it is. (laughs) All right. So my number three is Bumgardner's seven inning no hitter. And you may be asking yourself, shouldn't that be a little higher on the list? Well, thanks to Rob Manfred, we'll never know if it should have been. My number two is another junior, this time Vlad Guerrero Jr. He hit three home runs in one game the other night, and I believe two of them were off of Scherzer of the Nationals. And guess what? His Hall of Fame dad never hit three home runs in a game. So finally, only in like his second season, he's one-upping his Hall of Fame dad. I'm loving this trend. All right, so my number two, uh, (laughs) this was awesome. So in a game where the Cubs were beating up on the Braves by double digits, they were down like 10-0. This is prime position player pitching time. And so Anthony Rizzo got the call, and he was actually doing not too shabby. He was throwing like, you know, mid-70s, and uh, Freddie Freeman comes up, and he gets two strikes on him, and he strikes him out with a 64-mile-an-hour curveball. He wants to punch him out so bad. That is unbelievable. Absolutely dirty. And both the players were laughing the whole time. Freddie's joking like, oh, God, he has this over me forever now. I just, you know, when a game breaks down like that, you got to have fun with it. And that was one of those fun, you know, personable moments in baseball. It was great to see. My number one performance of the week is none other than my ace, Garrett Cole. He dazzled on Saturday. He faced off against Shane Bieber, the reigning AL Cy Young Award winner, and the Yankees won 2-1, and Cole went seven innings, only three hits, one earned run, and 11 strikeouts, and he was just on fire. It was unfucking real and I'm so happy to have him on my team. I've never loved a pitcher like this, so I'm just overjoyed that he is a Yankee. So you finally know how I feel about my number one. 
Number 48 in your programs. Number one in your hearts and number one in pitching, Jacob Anthony DeGrom. So, you know, we talked about what happened against the Red Sox with DeGrom. He pitched a gem, didn't deserve to lose, gave up one run, you know, classic. What I want to talk about is the start before that, which is, I don't even know if it's debatable. It was probably the best game he has ever pitched. He set his personal record in strikeouts in a single game with 15. He didn't walk a guy. He got a complete game shutout. And the Mets scored six runs behind him. Which, that really had nothing to do with... Well, actually, I can't say that had nothing to do with him because he definitely either scored a run or drove one in. I forget which, but he definitely had something to do with some of those numbers. But yeah, we we are witnessing greatness. We are witnessing an all-time pitcher. We are witnessing a legend. And sometimes you got to pinch yourself. And, you know, even when DeGrom is not on all the way, we get what we got against the Red Sox. You know, six innings, one run, I think maybe one walk, if any, nine strikeouts. When he is on, we get what we got a week and a half ago, which was just... What else could you possibly want? That's that's the best pitcher in the world at the top of his game. It, it, it's amazing to watch, and it, it's, it's important to recognize it for what it is in real time. And he also set a major league, or rather made major league history that night because he reached 50 strikeouts in only four games, and that's never been done in the history of the game. And he, uh, against the Red Sox, he upped it to 59, which ties Nolan Ryan's record for the most strikeouts through five games. That's some rarefied air up there. And if I could just say one last thing, my little fun favorite fact was going into that game against the Red Sox, DeGrom's ERA was sitting at 0.35. He gave up that run in six, which drove it all the way up to a 0.51. Unreal. That about wraps it up for Breaking Balls this week. And remember everybody, Starting with episode 58, we are going to be recording on Tuesday nights and releasing our episodes on Thursdays. And this is going to be for the rest of the season, basically. So one time only, you get two Breaking Balls episodes in a single week. So you know what that means? We are going to need a whole new bag of voicemails. So anyone listening, you want to get in on the fun, feeling brassy, give the Breaking Balls hotline a call. 631-820-7377. You could also find us on Twitter at BreakBallsPod. And we want to thank our amazing producer and engineer, DJ Bingington. You can find him on Twitter as well, at DJ B-I-N-G-I-N-G-T-O-N. And we will catch you guys next week. Misdemeanor on the floor, pretty boy, here I come. Pumps in the bump, make you want to hurt something. I can take your man, I don't have to sex something. Hang him out the window.